Isaiah 52, um, verse 13. Somehow that got stuck in there. <clears throat> yeah, why don't you stand? We'll stand and we'll read God's word here. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he was put to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, we stand in awe of the gospel. God, it is the thing of this world. It's the story. It's the major, fundamental, most beautiful act of all eternity. And Lord, today I pray that you would stir our hearts to see it in a fresh light. God, to see it in everything. God, I pray that we would not be able to sin, that we'd not be able to hold a grudge, that we'd not be able to lose our temper, that we'd not be able to be irritated or frustrated without at the same time seeing the beauty of the gospel. Father, I pray that it would be believed and delighted in and lived out this day. In Jesus' name, amen. 
It's kind of hard to predict the future. Um, those of you who fill out the NCAA brackets, you know that, isn't it? It's, it's kind of hard to predict the future. Some of your brackets are probably already busted. And a lot of guys, a lot of people in history have tried to predict what would be coming, what, what the future would hold. Let me read you some of the smartest ones. Thomas Edison, we all believe he's a pretty smart guy, right? Thomas Edison, born in 1847, died in 1931. He spoke of today, okay? He spoke of this century. And here's what he said he predicted would happen in this century. He said, The house of the next century will be furnished from basement to attic with steel. The baby of the 21st century will be rocked in a steel cradle. His father will sit in a steel chair at a steel dining table. And his mother's boudoir will be sumptuously equipped with steel furnishings. Gold has even now but a few years to live. The day is near when bars of it will be as common and as cheap as bars of iron or blocks of steel. Before long, it will be an easy matter to convert a truckload of iron bars into as many bars of virgin gold. Okay? That has not yet happened. I don't know if you realize that, but you cannot pull up when your pickup was scrap iron and get replace it for gold, okay? Uh, that didn't happen. Not yet, anyway. Popular Mechanics Magazine, 1949, says this. Where a calculator like ENIAC today is equipped with 18,000 vacuum tubes and weighs 30 tons, computers in the future may, may, it may get this good, only have a thousand vacuum tubes and perhaps weigh only one and a half tons. What would you think of that, huh? Here's uh, Alex Lute, president of Lute Vacuum Company, 1955, said this, nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will probably be a reality in 10 years. You got one of those? This is the one that blows me away. After visiting the Grand Canyon in 1861... Lieutenant Joseph Ives said, Ours has been the first expedition and doubtless to be the last to visit this profitless locality. Right now, there's thousands of people standing at the South Rim, right? About an eighth the population of Asia is usually there, actually, if you've ever been there. Robert Metcalf, 1995. I predict the internet will soon go spectacularly supernova and in 1996, catastrophically collapse didn't happen (laughs) president of the michigan savings bank advising a group of men who wanted to invest in the ford motor company uh, in 1903 he said this the horse is here to stay but the automobile is only a novelty and a fad (laughs) all those folks fail pretty miserably at predicting the future what would happen even in a year or 10 years or 100 years would you stand in awe? No, you know, I don't want you to stand, but would you, would you be in awe of the fact that 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah accurately predicted his life, his death, the means of his death, the purpose of his death, the resurrection, and the gospel 700 years prior to Jesus' coming. That's what we find in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we find in this chapter, and I wish we had time, maybe in your small group, somebody will 
go to the work this afternoon to look this up, but maybe, maybe you would look at all the parallels, you know, at uh, the, the parallel of, of Jesus being buried in Joseph of Aramea, the rich man's tomb, of the parallel of crucifixion and being pierced and, and uh, the parallel of, of the flogging and the parallel of, of, of justification by faith and of imputed righteousness in verse 11 and of resurrection in, in, uh, in 10 and 11. You know, I hope maybe somebody will do We don't have time to do that this morning. I'm, I'm barely, I'm actually not fitting in what I have into the time I'm allotted, all right? That's why I was late, all right? But, but, but man, if, just going through and marveling at 700 years, accurately just showing us a picture of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so what do we learn? Well, let, let, me, let me point out the, some major things, okay? First, a couple of things about us, okay? A couple of things about us that we learn from Isaiah 52 and 53. We learn that the Messiah is going to come, okay? God's going to step out of the heavens, and he's going to come. He's going to show up in earth, and nobody's going to recognize him, okay? Nobody, not only is nobody going to recognize him, but they're, they're going to despise him. They're, they're, they're going to they're gonna hate him. They're going to reject him, all right? And that's exactly... What happened as you read the Gospels is Jesus steps out of the heavens and everybody completely misses who he is. And why do they miss him? Well, they miss him because he doesn't look like what the world values, okay? Now, let me explain that. So Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, for he grew up uh, before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry, dry ground. Are you looking at the verse, verse 2? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Now, what does Isaiah 53 say about the coming Messiah? He's going to come in a way nobody's going to think he's attractive. Nobody's going to think he's valuable. Nobody's going to think he won't have what the world thinks is valuable. In other words, he's not going to come in a way that we expect him to come. Right? We expect that a king would come how? Right? In, in, in a blaze of glory. And, in, in, you know, he'd be nine foot tall and be dressed in gold and come with an army subduing and laying everything waste. Right? That's, that's the way we can expect a king to come. That's not the way he would come. It's not the way Isaiah said he was going to come. But rather, how did Jesus come? He came in poverty and in obscurity, in a very ordinary way. In fact, that's just the way God works. Here's what God did. God packed infinite joy, eternal love, limitless power into an ordinary package. And what I'm telling you is that he does that all the time, okay? He does that with the church. If you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here's what Paul said about the church. He said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. That's true, isn't it? Not many of you uh, are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are. Okay, so God works that way. That's a characteristic of the way that God works is he, he takes the ordinary and he packs in it the extraordinary. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ stepped into the world. In the Gospel of John, it describes Christ coming in, in verse 10 and 11. It says he was in the world and the world was made through him. Okay, The world was made through the word of Jesus. And then listen to this. The world didn't know him. Okay? The world did not recognize its creator. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But rather, verse 3, he was despised. What the word despised means is of little value, unimportant, insignificant. He was rejected. Our creator came to visit, and we murdered him. That's exactly what happened. 
the one who could and would give us life, we tortured and slandered and hung up to mock while he died. We rejected our rescuer. We slaughtered our savior. We, we loved what would kill us and we hated the one who could save us. And Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 prophesied all of that. Now, Isaiah looks forward. One of the things that is hard about reading the prophets is, I don't know about you, but when I read things, I like for it to start like day one and then tell me day two and then tell me day three and four and five. And That's the way I like to read things. The prophets are not that way at all, okay? It starts in chapter 52 and verse 13 and 14 and 15, giving us this overall summary, okay? It talks about him being brutally, brutally just, crucified and and butchered in verse 14. We'll talk about that a little later. And then in verse 15, it says he sprinkles the nations. How's he going to do that? Well, we look ahead and understand now from 1 Peter that his blood sprinkles those who, who, who are saved and joined to Christ. And then it says this, okay, so after he's brutally butchered in 14, it says in verse 15, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. What does that mean when a king shuts his mouth? He's got nothing to say, right? He has made a serious, grievous error, and he's stuck, right? Oh, my, what have I done, okay? The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that there's coming a day. Revelation chapter 6 prophesies about it in verse 15 where it says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they called on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. So indeed, Isaiah 52 is showing us the full scope of who Jesus would be. So number one, what's the characteristic of us? We don't recognize our King. We don't recognize our Messiah. We don't value him. We esteem him very lowly and lightly and reject him. Number two, number two is kind of the the nature of humanity, and that is We need a shepherd, but we demand to go our own way. Look at verse, chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, that's the characteristic of mankind, is that we reject our shepherd. Now, notice it never says about us, all we like grizzly bears, okay? You know why it doesn't call us a grizzly bear or a lion or a cougar? You know why? Because those guys, they, they just do whatever they want, right? And they get away with it. A sheep does not do that. Okay, a sheep, if it wants to live, needs to listen to the shepherd. A sheep, if it wants not to be eaten by wolves, needs to stay close to the shepherd. A sheep, if it wants to live, needs to follow the shepherd. Okay, and it says we're all like sheep, but we're funny sheep in that we don't want to go with the shepherd. We demand our own way. In fact, I think that's a great picture of human nature is that simple phrase, we demand our own way. We've gone our own way. Man, if you walk into the nursery at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see little kids who came out of their mother's womb demanding their own way. You know, have you ever thought about that we really wouldn't need to staff our nursery if kids weren't that way? You know, if, if kids would just, if they didn't come out of the womb that way, you could just put toys and food and everything, just put it in there, shut the door, lock it, you know, and go back and check on them later, okay? But you can't do that. You know why? Because they want their own way, right? And when they don't get their own way, you are very fortunate that they only weigh 15 pounds or they would take you out, all right? I mean, fury. Have you noticed that? I mean, when they don't get their own way, what do they do? Do they, well, you know, mom, that's a good point. I, I think I'll, I'll submit to your authority. That's not what they do, is it? They scream bloody murder, right? I mean, they, they do everything they can to show you, I am ticked off that I don't have my own way. 
Now, adults, we've learned to be a little more diplomatic about it, but you know what James tells us? James tells us that the root of all conflict is simply this. People don't get their way. That's what James tells us. He says, why are there conflicts and quarrels and why? You know why? Because we want and we don't get what we want. And we're furious. Why? Because we want to go our own way. All right, so how, how does this Messiah, how does this coming king that is prophesied of in Isaiah 52 and 53, how does he handle the fact that he shows up and nobody recognizes him and nobody values him and they despise him and they reject him and they all won't listen to him but insist and demand, I want my own way. I don't want your way. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want your word. I don't want to listen to you. I want to do what I want to do. How does the Messiah God How does he respond to that? Verse 4, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That word born means to simply that, to bear under something, okay? What what it means is, is that weight was put on Jesus, okay? How does he respond? He responds by coming and he, and he comes and he takes weight off of you, off of the redeemed, off of, of mankind, and he, and he places it upon himself. God takes burdens and griefs and sorrows off of you and he, and he places it upon Jesus. Now, ask yourself for a minute, how heavy is that? And really, we have no capability of understanding how heavy that is because most of what Jesus is bearing we will never have to bear. And I'm talking to believers here today, okay? But if you're a believer here today, most of what Jesus is bearing, you've never had to bear any of it at all, okay? So so think, you, you have had to bear a little bit of your guilt and a little bit of the consequences of your sin, right? Not the eternal consequences, not the wrath of God, not separation, not not darkness forever, none of that, but you have had to bear the guilt of having messed up. Have you ever ever done that? You have done that, right? You have sinned, and you have had to bear the guilt of knowing you did wrong. You, You sinned against God. You demanded your own way. You chose yourself over God, over others, and you hurt people, and many times there's consequences to that, right? You messed up your life. Your kids suffer for that. Your family suffers for that. You suffer for that. And so we've had to bear that little bit of weight upon us. But most of what you should have on you, you've never had to bear, right? You've never had to bear the weight. Think of Jesus bearing the weight of millions of sins, of failures, of betrayals, of regrets, of violent acts, of lies, of cover-ups, of immoralities, of people saying, God, I will not go your way. I don't care what this says. I will do what I want to do. Jesus bears the punishment of all of that. You and I have never bared the the weight of eternal grief. What is it like to be in hell and to know I will never get out of here? There will never be light. There will never be joy again. There's not a chance of redeeming myself. There's not a chance of saying, whoa, I messed up. Can I go a different direction? What is it like to bear the weight of knowing you are in darkness forever? You are in eternal torment forever. You're in the wrath of God forever. There's never going to be any change to your condition. What would it be like to have that weight upon you? Man, we, we understand a little bit about the weight of getting sick. You know, understanding, man, for the next six hours, I'm going to throw up. 
I mean, that, that's, a, that's a heavy bear, heavy weight to bear. Some of you know the weight of having cancer and knowing, man, I'm going to have to go through treatments and radiation. Some of you know the weight of losing a loved one. You know some of that weight. We know nothing of the weight that Jesus has carried so that we never will have to carry it. We don't know anything about hopelessness. You know, we may feel hopeless at times, but there's never real hopelessness for a believer. We talked about that last week in Romans chapter 8. We know nothing about that that Jesus has carried for us. Now, do we have sorrows? Yes. We know a little bit about that. We know about disappointment, right? We know about wanting our life to be this way and it turning out a different way. And we know a little bit about grief and about loss. We know about babies who, who never got to be born and, and friends laid in the grave and parents who, who we watch suffer and dwindle away and the broken heart of a child or losing a child. We know about some of that. But listen, Jesus has carried all of our disappointments, all of our losses, all of our brokenness. He's carried the full weight of that. Why do I say the full weight of that? Because what he accomplished on the cross enables last week's sermon out of Romans 8, right? Remember that God works all things together for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that the weight of glory that's coming eclipses all bad things. You see, you don't have to carry the full weight of that. Jesus scoops all that up, carries it through the cross so that all you have is hope to come. And we simply have to carry the losses and the disappointments of this life, even though we don't bear the full weight of them, because Christ is redeeming them for a very short time. I know at times our load seems heavy. It is heavy. With one of our families this week just experiencing blow after crushing blow upon their life. But would you please understand Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. What that is saying is, no matter your load right now, it's but a grain of sand compared to what Christ is at present carrying for you. There's times where my wife will go, the dryer will go off. Our, our washer and dryer, they run continuously. They have not been off since 10 years. You know, we just wash, 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 wash. Dryer goes off, my wife will scoop up that load, that massive load of laundry, and she'll walk it through the kitchen into the living room to fold it. And many times, you know what happens, a sock will fall off. And she'll turn and tell one of the kids, hey, grab that sock and bring it in here. And you know what, kids, right? Though, at times, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Some degree, that's the picture of us, isn't it? You know, Jesus has said, I'm redeeming every bad thing in your life. Romans 8, I'm, I'm turning it all for glory. I am, I am transforming it by the power of the shed blood of Christ into nothing but glory for you. But for a little while, that's what Peter says. I'm using biblical language here, 1 Peter 1. For a little while, you, you're going to be distressed by a few of these trials. Again, not making light of what people have to endure in this life, but understanding, please understand, you need to know this. If you're a believer, Jesus is carrying most of your burdens. Most all of them. It never hits you. If you're an unbeliever here today, 
It will hit you if, if you do not repent. But, but listen to the grace of God now. He is holding back His wrath. For, for whatever reason, God is so rich in mercy and grace that you're not even experiencing the consequences of your sin, the punishment, the wrath of God. God is holding that back. He's staying His hand. Even now, you do not carry your load. But Jesus carries our load. And so what is, what is Christ's response? What is the Messiah's response to Him coming, the Creator coming to His world, and we hate Him, and we don't think He's attractive, and He's too ordinary, and the more miracles He does, the more ticked off people get until they finally crucify Him. What is His response to Him being our shepherd and us saying, man, I don't care what you say about anger. I'm doing this. I don't care what you say about forgiveness. I'm doing this. I don't care what you say about purity. I'm doing this. What is his response to that? His response is to carry and bear our griefs and sorrows. Number two, his response is to become our substitute. Okay? The primary message of Isaiah 53 is substitutionary atonement. Okay, and I know that's a big word, but here's what that, here's what that phrase means. He takes our place, okay? He takes our place. You know, you know what I've found? I've found that we as a people, we cannot stand to be blamed for things that we did not do. Is that true or not, huh? Man, I have seen that. Man, it's, it's sometimes almost comical to do marriage counseling and, you know, we'll ask, well, tell me, you know, tell me what's going on in your marriage. And, and so somebody will bring up their perspective. And as they're bringing up their perspective about what's happening in their marriage, the other one is like wigging out in the chair, you know. I mean, sometimes it's like subtle things like, ah, you know, oh, oh, you know, I, not only eye rolls, but sometimes they do cartwheels backwards, you know, to, you know, show their disgust in what was just said, you know. All the way to, no, 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 no. I'm not even going to let you finish that, right? I mean, we can't stand for, for it to be our fault when it's not our fault. Okay? The heart of the gospel is this. Jesus gets blamed for your sin. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is you, you demand your own way and you, you butcher God's laws. And then the Messiah comes and he gets blamed for it voluntarily. He takes the blame. Another thing that ticks people off is when you get credit. Someone gets credit for something that they didn't deserve. Man, you hear that at the break room, don't you? That, that's a common theme in the break room, right? Like branch manager or the, the regional manager comes in and you know, he applauds somebody for doing a good job. And everybody knows, hey, that wasn't just that guy. You know, that was all of us. In fact, that guy hardly did anything, you know. And man, when that manager leaves, I mean, that break room, the donuts are vibrating on the table because there's so much tension, you know, and anger about you got credit for something you didn't deserve. Folks, let me tell you the heart of the gospel. If you're a believer, you're sitting there right now getting credit for what you do not deserve. You're sitting there right now, full of righteousness. Not yours, Christ. You're sitting right there, full of blamelessness, of purity, of rightness with God. And you did none of it. You see, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus 
is pierced. He's crushed. He's chastised. He's wounded for your transgressions. Those words are cool. They're vivid. They're descriptive. My favorite, I think, is crushed. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. What is it when you crush somebody? You don't just push them down, right? You, actually, you don't just shoot them. You don't just, you know, cut the throat. I mean, to crush somebody is something else. It's, it's to pulverize them. Isaiah chapter 52, I think, describes this better than anything. Isaiah 52, 14 gives us a brief picture of Jesus. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What is that saying? That is saying Jesus at the end of his crucifixion was so butchered you could not tell it was a man. That's what it's saying. He was crushed. You know what's interesting? That wasn't the real crushing. That was the beginning of the crushing. But the real crushing happened later. Jesus endured all of that physically without a word. But in Matthew chapter 27, here comes the blow that none of us can really understand. Matthew 27, 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What's happening right there? He's been hanging on the cross for six hours. What all of a sudden happens at the end of the cross, right before he dies? What happens is the eternal, almighty God in Trinitarian form, Jesus, who has who has existed from eternity past in fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, all of a sudden has the transgressions and the filth of us pressed upon Him. And He bears the weight. The weight you and I have never carried, know nothing about. He bears the weight of the wrath of God for us. He was crushed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's shortly after that that he breathes his last and dies. And when the soldiers come up, they're surprised he's already dead. The criminals aren't. You know why he's already dead? Man, he was crushed with your sin. I don't know what that's like. You don't know what that's like to drink the eternal wrath of God. But let me ask you this. Does it not change the way you look about sin? I don't know about you guys, but it bothers me to put other people out. It bothers me to do things that cause other people pain. Even just irritation. It, it, it troubles me. We were at the Cosmosphere on Friday with our kids and we were watching the National Parks video and, and it's this dome screen. It's really cool. I went there when I was a kid. I wanted to take my kids and, and the movie's starting. But here's the thing about one-year-olds. Movies, just, it doesn't translate, you know? I mean, he kind of likes cars a little bit, the movie Cars, you know, because he likes cars and trains and stuff. But he's watching this National Park. He's loud, you know. We're trying to shove, you know, astronaut ice cream in him as fast as we can to keep him occupied, you know. But it's not working, you know. And every time the screen will change and go black or to a new new scene, you know, it's all quiet. And he's like, oh, wow, wow, you know. (laughs) 
There's this distinguished white-haired man in front of us. You can tell he's got money, dressed real nice. You know, his family was there with him, real, probably his grandkids. And he's got, he's got this great full head of hair. You know, it's white. And he's got it even in like the new style, the faux hawk deal. And old Colt looks at that and he's like, I think I'll slap that, you know, right down, you know. I'm just like, ah. And it's about that time, I'm like, we got to get him out of here, man. You know, and it just, it, it bothered me. It bothered me to just even cause irritation to other people. How much should it bother you to sin? To know that your sin, Jesus is being blamed for it. He's being crushed for it. He's bearing the weight of it. Should we still be a people that say, I'm my own way? I don't care what the shepherd says. Oh, your word says that. That's nice. That's nice. God, I'll, I'll, I'll go your way when you agree with me. When I agree with you that, yeah, that's okay, I'll do it. But man, if it's hard, or if it puts me out, or if it goes a direction I don't want to go, no, I'm going my own way. Is that, is that the heartbeat of somebody who has received the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ? I don't think it is. Verse 12 says he was numbered with the transgressors. You know what that means? That means Jesus is not a sinner. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. He's not an idolater. He's not an adulterer. He's not a murderer. He's not foul-mouthed. He's not perverted. He's not lazy. He's not good for nothing. But he is treated as one. His name goes on that list. Your name goes off that list. (laughs) Verse 11 end of verse 11. You, what does it say? He's going to make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. His name goes on the list. Your name goes off the list. And by his wounds you're healed. Thirdly, what's Jesus, the Messiah's response to our our rebellion? It is quiet submission to God's will. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Again, you can read that in the Gospels. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When the disciples resisted in the garden, he stops them and says, Guys, don't you realize if I wanted out of this, I could call 10,000 angels. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, is there another way? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. What was, what was God's will? Well, look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who crucified Jesus? That's a complicated question, isn't it? Well, it was the Romans, right? They're the ones that flogged him and beat him and mocked him and put the crown of thorns on his head and um, nailed him to a cross, stuck it in the hole, watched him suffocate, jabbed the spear up into his side, into his heart, blood and water flowed. The Romans. Or was it the Jews? They were the ones that accused him, had him arrested, concocted a joke of a trial in which they brought false witnesses. They were the ones that when Pilate offered to release him, they said, no, 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 no. 
Give us the murderer instead. We want him. Barabbas, let him go. Yeah, but he's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. Oh, that's okay. Let him go. Crucify Jesus. Was it Jews? Or was it you? It was your sin. It was yours. Or was it God? Verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's plan. God was in one defining moment of all history displaying his infinite justice and righteousness and at the same time his infinite mercy and love all together in one event in which the punishment for sin was being dealt out fully and sufficiently The value of Jesus Christ, the worth of the infinite Son of God, was worth enough to pay for the sin of all the redeemed. And at the same time, God was displaying His rich love and mercy in forgiving and adopting a people for His own possession. And so how should we respond to Isaiah 53? Well, let me give you three things that are out of the scriptures. So right out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2 is a commentary on Isaiah 53. So let me give you three things right out of the scripture, and then let me give you one big thing that I want us to close with, okay? Here's the three things. Isaiah chapter, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to you, for to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so the first response to Isaiah 53 is, this teaches you how to suffer. This teaches you how to go through difficult things. This teaches you how to, how to endure difficult struggles, okay? And particularly this next phrase, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. How do you handle suffering? How do you handle when someone attacks you? How do, how do you handle that? Well, again, what does our own way say? Man, I'm going to attack him back, right? But what does Jesus do? Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And this phrase right here, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What's the message of the cross? The message of the cross is look at Jesus' example. What does he do? He entrusts himself to God. As he's suffering, as he's being attacked and falsely accused and brutally beaten and crucified, what's he doing? What's he doing that whole time? He is entrusting himself. He is trusting the Father's will. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That, this is the message in the New Testament, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen, Isaiah 53, if you've really embraced it, it kills sin. It kills sin. Man, listen, as a lover of Jesus... How can a lover of Jesus walk out of here and say, I know it's sin. I'm going to do it anyway. Can you do that? Not that that we won't have weak moments and repent and come back to this cross again and again. What I'm saying is it changes our relationship with sin. We die to sin and we live to righteousness. Now the big overall thing. The big overall thing is simply this. 
Isaiah 53 ought to bring about worship in your life. It ought to bring about a life of worship. Now, what do I mean by a life of worship? Does that mean that Bonnie gives you a list of hymns, you know, and you sing them all day long, you know? Hey, that's not a bad idea, but I don't think that's what it means. What I mean by a life of worship is is simply this, that the person and the work of Jesus Christ are always in the background of your life. They're always in the frame. They're always in the picture. In other words, you, you think about and celebrate and delight in and appropriate. This story defines every other story in your life. What, what Isaiah 53 ought to do for us is that we, we ought to, when we talk about suffering, we can't talk about suffering. We can't think about suffering. We can't suffer ourselves without at the same time remembering Him who is carrying our griefs and sorrows right now. Him who has substituted his, Himself in our place so that we will never bear what we deserve. What, what, what this means is by worship, when we talk about sacrifice or nobility or valiant deeds, we're talking about Isaiah 53. It's in the, it's in the framework. The work and person of Christ is always there. Man, I can't watch a movie. That, movies, you know what movies are about most of the time? Valiant deeds, right? Sacrifice and nobility. In fact, I can't watch a movie without at the same time thinking, all right, that's cool, but it's just a cheap imitation of Jesus. And maybe it makes me appreciate him a little more. I hope so. When we talk about victory and accomplishments, when we talk about winning the state championship, man, we ought to celebrate that. We ought to hug on Cameron Pope and Kenzie Didier. And man, that ought to be a cool thing in our lives. But we ought not be able to think about it without at the same time thinking of the victory of the cross. What makes all that sweet? What makes all that possible? What makes our lives possible is the cross. We ought not be able to talk about sin and failure and rebellion without immediately going to the cross. Listen, if if your response when you blow it is, man, I just need to discipline myself to do better. Oh, you've missed it. Like you missed all of Christianity. Went right by. No. Every time I sin, where do I go? Where? Where? cross that's the only place i can go and i i can i can confess my sin and repent of it and and lay it on the cross of jesus embracing full payment and his righteousness in my account that's where i have to go i live my life there you'll live if you're if you're if you're a worshiper you'll live your life there we can't think about rescue or hope for the future or kings or world orders or presidents or what's coming without at the same time realizing that everything in this world is a part of this story. Do you get that? There's nothing in this world that's not a part of this story. This is the story of all time. It's the purpose of all time. And everything else feeds into this story. Folks, this is our life. The cross is our hope. It is our life. It is our story. Father, I pray that, God, that we would be genuine worshipers. Those who delight in and glory in, as Paul said, we boast in the cross. 
It is our hope, God. It is our victory. It is our redemption. It's our answer for sin. It's what makes suffering bearable. God, it's what gives perspective to our life. Father, this story is everything to us. God, I pray that you would deeply entrench it in us. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand, please?